Good morning, Kingsway. My name's Matthew. There we go. And I have the honor of preaching God's word to us this morning. And some of you who have been here before are thinking, well, what happened to the scripture reader? Isn't somebody supposed to read the word of God before you preach the word of God? We are going to get to the reading of the word of God. Have no fear. Um, But as we're beginning a new sermon series, I wanted to um, introduce the series a bit before we read a particular passage. And actually, before we jump into that, uh, let me do two things very quickly. One, just specifically thank those of you who joined us for our prayer meeting last Sunday. Um, we had a number of folks that I hadn't seen in a prayer meeting in a while, and I'm grateful for the faith that demonstrated in the power of prayer, and in particular, the power of the God who answers prayer. So thank you for coming and praying for our church And last Sunday, as I encouraged us to be a people that pray not only for our church, but as the Apostle Paul does for other churches around us, if I could specifically request your prayers uh, for our sister church, Living Faith Church in Franklin, West Virginia, Uh, one of their bivocational pastors, Brad Mitchell, was recently diagnosed with cancer. Um, And that's a significant man, a real pillar in that congregation, as uh, some of our members know. A Living Faith Church actually planted, helped plant Kingsway in 1989. So we owe a debt of gratitude to them. And um, even if you don't know Brad, you can imagine um, hearing that diagnosis for one of your pastors just creates a lot of unsettledness in their hearts. He's dearly loved. He's practically born and raised in that county, I think. Is that right, guys? Um, So pray for Brad, if you could. And let me do that briefly this morning before we dive in. Lord, we ask right now, as that church is um, experiencing a, another sorrow, uh, you know that they have come face-to-face with significant sorrows in recent years through family members dying, members dying. As Brad faces this diagnosis, Lord, we thank you for the faith you have put in his heart. Thank you that he is not giving into despair or fear. Lord, we ask with our sister church that you would heal this man, that you would intervene in his physical body. You, the Savior, we just saw this again and again in Colossians, who holds all things together. Thank you right now that you are still holding Brad Mitchell together. And we pray as you do that, Lord, you would remove every cancerous cell and that you would give this man many more years of fruitful life on this earth. Guard their church from discouragement, strengthen their faith. Thank you, Lord, that we can carry this burden with them as part of the same family. We're grateful we get to do that. In your name we pray. And we ask for your blessing on this preaching now. Amen. Amen. I would argue, my friends, that the legitimacy of any authority outside of myself or outside of you has fallen on pretty hard times. But believe whatever you want to believe, you know. We say that, we hear that. Just, just don't cross the line and tell me that you're right and I'm wrong. Or that I have to do whatever you tell me to do. Um, I'm an American, right? 
which means I have the right to be and do exactly what I want to be and do. That, that kind of expressive individualism shows up all over the place. Um, it's the air we breathe, and it affects us more than we realize. So if we you know, want to know, well, what kind of job should we pursue? We ask, what do I feel like doing? Or who should we date or marry? We ask, who do I feel like spending time with? Or where should I live? Well, what kind of home would I enjoy? Or where should I go to church? Well, what kind of congregation will meet my needs? The, the very idea... Of, of seeking, let alone heeding, an authority other than my own desires is culturally incoherent. And the standard advice goes like this. Respect yourself enough, right, to do whatever you want to do and let other people deal with the consequences. The great problem with that, however, is that we are living like the emperor with no clothes. I can pretend that I have discovered the ultimate authority and that it's me. And in fact, the longer I, you, we act that part, I think the more convincing it becomes, you know? But that doesn't change the fact, friends, the, the brute fact that our very existence, not, not to mention the, the entire cosmos, testifies to a radically different spiritual reality. A brute fact, a spiritual reality that we deny to our peril. What's that? That the God who made the world and everything in it is the present and future authority with whom we have to do. That's the brute fact. Psalm 96 verse 10. The Lord reigns. Not you. Not me. Not a certain ethnicity or certain socioeconomic class. The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Which raises a really important question, right? How does the king of kings, that king, exercise his authority in our life? Well, he, he does it through the perfect gift of his word. Think about that. Through, through his precepts, through, through his testimonies, through his speech, his commands, his law, which means, don't miss this, that your response to the word of God is your response to the authority of God. How you respond to the word of God, it works backwards too, is equals, you math people, your response to the word of God. In other words, you cannot say, I'm good with God, but give short shift to God's word. You, you deny God's word, you reject God's word, you, you question and refuse to submit to God's word. You're doing all of those things to God. 
And over the years, I've, I've noticed that there are kind of big parts of God's word that even as Christians, we, we just tend to neglect or, or even ignore, you know? Uh, case in point, the Old Testament law, <laughs> right? So, so maybe you started reading the Bible, Christian, at some point. I was talking with someone this week. He was doing this, and, you know, they just humbly said, well, I love Genesis, first book. I read Exodus, yeah, and then I got to Leviticus, and I just thought, oh boy, um, can I go back to Genesis, you know? Um, you get to, maybe, maybe you got to Deuteronomy, you were really plugging along, but, but then you just think, good night, what, what is not eating ostriches, moving a neighbor's landmark, or keeping this feast of booze, is is that like a camping thing, have to do with life today? You ever thought that? You ever felt that or wondered that? You know, so so what do we do? Well, we we just decide, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to tell a pastor, but I'm just going to leave well enough alone. (laughs) And I'm going to camp out in the New Testament where I can focus on all the encouraging things that that Jesus is saying and doing, right? Because isn't, isn't Christian faith all about Jesus? Well, it is, but the whole, and we can, we can say this, this isn't helpful, but the whole law bad, gospel good thing really runs into some big problems. Okay? For example, in Matthew chapter 4, speaking of Jesus, when, when Jesus himself is, is parrying back, resisting temptation from the evil one, what does he do? Wait, where does he look? What, what resources does he appeal to? to? To what authority does he turn? Does God himself turn? Well, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Not, not once, hey, got to give sort of token acknowledgement to everything that came before me, but then I'm the man. No, he quotes it three times. It's the only book Christ appeals to. Brothers and sisters, every part of God's word is necessary for life and godliness. Every part. I said that Sunday, I'm going to beat that drum till the day I die. Not, not just back then. But today it's necessary. Every part of the Old Testament, law included. Why? Because Jesus did not abolish the law through his life and death and resurrection. He what? He fulfilled the law. The the application changes. Please hear this. The authority and relevance do not. Then and now both before Christ and after Christ, what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 12, is still true. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Jesus doesn't take a sharpie and cut that out of your Bible. And that is why I'm really excited to begin a new sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy called Ruled by a Gracious God. 
ruled by a gracious God. If you're not familiar with this book, Deuteronomy is all about God's authority over his people in the context of relationship with his people. That's the big picture. Don't don't think, in other words, God must have been into the authority thing in the Old Testament, but today he's into the relationship thing in the New Testament. That's another false dichotomy we create. No, from the dawn of creation, our God has always been righteously and gloriously committed to a gracious rule. He doesn't go through makeovers. He's been pouring out the unmerited fullness of his goodness and and summoning his image bearers to respond by embracing him accordingly. Deuteronomy is no exception to that pattern. And if you understand Deuteronomy, listen, it really is the key to understanding the entire Old Testament. If you don't get this book, a lot of other things before and around it just won't make any sense. It, it summarizes God's dealings with his people in, in the first four books of the Bible. It's, it's kind of a capstone for the first five and, and sets a spiritual trajectory, kind of shoots a laser level out, if you would, for all the other historical and prophetic books that, that follow. And ultimately, Deuteronomy points forward to Jesus, the new prophet like Moses, who who brings God's saving work that he began under the old covenant to completion in the new. So open your Bible, if you have one, to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, number five, Deuteronomy. And these are big ones, so they're harder to flip past. I like that. We're going to read the first five verses. Hear the word of the Lord. This really is a preamble for the whole. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And the Arabah opposite Saf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Andrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. May the Lord bless his word. I I want to unpack that passage uh, in a way that really sets up the rest of the series. Okay, so as you can already probably tell, this sermon's going to look a little bit different than others because we're introducing something we're going to be in for best guess close to a year. All right, so let's consider the author the setting, and the content, okay? Author, setting, content. We want to read God's word on its own terms and its own categories. Who's the author? What's the context? What's the content? And then I'm going to end with some, what I hope are helpful guidelines for reading the law in light of Christ. 
So first, the author, who's the author? A prophet like Moses. Prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy wastes no time, look at verse 1, identifying Moses as the author. A lot of scholars spend the greater part of their life, it seems, trying to recast this, but Deuteronomy itself asserts otherwise. Look at verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to Israel. So who was Moses? Well, he's, he's pretty much the prophet par excellence in the Old Testament. He, he was born in a Jewish family. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh. And, and the Lord used him to, to rescue Israel or, or the descendants of Jacob out of slavery in Egypt, and then then lead a nation of several million people to the border of Canaan, the the promised land that that God had pledged to give Abraham and his descendants. And and Deuteronomy largely consists of three speeches, or sermons really, that that Moses delivered to Israel right before he died. And and there are obviously some narrative sections in here that, that Moses could not have written. Okay, case in point, the account and aftermath of his death. <laughs> That's a little difficult to do, right? In chapter 34, but, but subsequent books of scripture explicitly affirm Moses' authorship of the whole as the primary author, including Matthew 19, okay, where, where Jesus himself refers to portions of Deuteronomy, quote, as what Moses commanded or what Moses allowed. And I, I linger on this point, mosaic authorship, because I want us to remember, friends, we're not, we're not reading in Deuteronomy just a, a mere collection of rules. You ever tried to read the Code of Virginia? Uh, I don't recommend it. I, I've had to, number of situations, but it'll put you to sleep in a hot second, okay? It's a, it's a collection of rules. This is different. We're listening to a sermon here. Moses is preaching. And he has specific pastoral aims in view. Deuteronomy 32 verse 46. Take heart to all the words by which I am warning you today, he says. That you may command them to your children. That they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For this is no empty word for you, Israel, but your very life. He's preaching. (laughs) But, But how can Moses claim as much? Your very life? Really? Well, because Moses isn't speaking according to his own wisdom. He's speaking, look back at chapter 1, verse 3. According to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So, what's that mean? Moses' words were God's words. Given to him through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes them your very life for Israel. We, we don't get life from Moses. We do get life from the words of God. So what Moses says, God says. S- such that for Israel to disobey or ignore Moses was what? For Israel to disobey or ignore God. And for us, the same holds true. For, for us to ignore or disobey Moses, Deuteronomy, is to ignore or disobey God. Re- remember that, Kingsway especially as we work through difficult passages in this book. These are God's words to us. 
We, we must not start with, does this feel relevant? Okay? Don't do that. We, we must start with this. Lord, I'm listening. Help me to understand and obey. I'm listening. Help me to understand and obey. That, that's how we read Deuteronomy. So, so don't, succinctly as I can put it, okay? Don't get hung up on the ostrich. <laughs> Please don't. Focus on this. What is God communicating? What is God saying? How, how is he revealing himself to us? And how do we need to respond? All right, L- listen to the divine author and obey. That's the author, all right? Now, what's the, what's the setting? Well, more or less, it's warnings and promises. Warnings and promises, okay? When, when God speaks to us through his word, he does so to a particular people at a particular moment in redemptive history. In other words, God's word doesn't just chill in spiritual space. It, in, it invades the real world at a point in time. Look, look again at verse 1. What's the, what's the context here, the setting? These are the words that Moses spoke when and where? To all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah. So, so where is Israel as Moses is preaching to them? Well, they're in a, in a place called northern Moab. And they're poised, they're on the edge of entering the promised land, Canaan, where they're going to face the greatest spiritual test of their life. What's that? When you enter the land, Israel, are you going to remain faithful to God or are you not? That's the test. They're they're poised on the edge of that. Canaan, why is that a test? Well, Canaan, the promised land, was just riddled with paganism, with false gods, idols, where it would be ever so tempting for Israel to reject the Lord and, and worship a false god, an idol, that they could see and touch and manipulate. That the spiritual allure of compromise would be strong. And Moses knows that. He's a good pastor. He's a good shepherd. He's he's also about to die. He's not going to get to go into the promised land with Israel. So so Deuteronomy are not just Moses' final words, his last words. That alone is significant. But it's it's words of preparation for for an imminent spiritual and physical battle that's about to go down. Think of, just to illustrate this, think of a parachutist about to jump out of a plane. Maybe some of you crazy people have done that. Or, or a, a boxer about to enter the ring. Or, or a football coach who's you know, gathering his team together at halftime but before the whistle blows. You, you, can, you can feel the tension, you know, in those moments. The future's fast approaching. Clock's ticking. And it's, it's going to go in one of two directions. Either you go God's way and succeed, Israel, or you go your way and fail. So what's Moses saying? Guys, listen up, okay? Pay attention. Take my words to heart and follow the Lord. Right now, on the boundary, choose this day whom you will serve, as Joshua later says. And at this point, before we've really gone anywhere in this book, 
I would simply observe, friends, we face that exact same choice every moment of our life. Every moment of your life, you live on the boundary. Right now, today, in this moment, tomorrow morning, tonight, 30 minutes from now, will I go God's way or my way? We, we live in that. I think the reference to the wilderness in verse 1 is easy to overlook. Okay, random details. Sure glad I live in Midlothian, not a desert. Israel didn't overlook that word. (laughs) She had been there for 40 years. But she wasn't supposed to be. God, God didn't rescue her out of slavery in Egypt. That passage Bob was reading earlier. Just to kind of, surprise, here's the wilderness of Paran. No, immediately after the Exodus, Moses led the nation to Horeb or Mount Sinai. Same thing, where the Lord revealed the majesty of his glory. And he reaffirmed his relationship with his people. And from Mount Sinai or Horeb, it was only a short march. Verse 2 says, 11 days to Kadesh Barnea, which is a region on the very southern border of the promised land, the land of Canaan. In other words, they should have been in the promised land in less than two weeks. That was 40 years ago. 40 years is a long time. Long time. Why 40 years? Because the people rebelled against the Lord. They they gave in to their fears of the difficulty of conquering the land instead of trusting the Lord, despite all the mighty acts of salvation they had witnessed, all, all the incredible deliverance they had seen in Egypt just weeks ago. Even though the Lord had said, Do not fear, I am with you, I will help you, all those enemies don't stand a chance before me. Israel said, no, no, we're not going to do it. She refused to obey. And the Lord judged her accordingly, friends. They, They spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness until everyone who had disobeyed the word of God died. What should have taken 11 days took 40 years. Because of Israel's unbelief. Deuteronomy begins. Why does it begin there? Because we need to hear the sober warning of the consequences of human unfaithfulness. But that's that's not the only contextual reference at the beginning of the book. Look at verse 4. Human unfaithfulness is seriously in play here. But it's not the only thing. Verse 4. Moses spoke to the people of Israel. When? When's he preaching? After... He had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, or Bashan. So if you're not familiar with that story, in Numbers 21, when Israel was still in the wilderness, but but approaching Moab, okay, two different kings tried to wipe her out. Big bad kings. And they both failed. Listen to what the Lord says to Moses right before the battle with Og. Do not fear him, Moses, for I have given him into your hand. 
and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left and they possessed the land. What what do those experiences in Israel's wilderness years, before they've come to an end, tell us, friends, what does that shout? That there's a bigger context, a a bigger story going down in the world then and now than mere human unfaithfulness and sin. It's the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness to, to keep his promises, even though we fail to keep our promises to him. De- Deuteronomy 1 verse 4 is not a random historical reference. Oh, we got to say something about Sihon and Og. No, it is a milestone to the mercy and redemptive power of God. You guys have failed me, Israel, again and again. Should have taken 11 days you, it, for 40 years into this. But I will not leave you. I won't forsake you. I'm going to finish the work I began. That's what those victories shout. Aren't aren't you grateful, friend, that when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful? Yes, there's a sober warning here. You just hear Moses. Let's not do this for another 40 years. (laughs) Right? But there's a promise in verse 4, precious promise. Hear this. So important. God is still able to do today the things we failed to trust him to do yesterday. Did you catch that? He's, God is still able to do today, your life, right now, the very things you failed to trust him to do yesterday. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The, the divine warrior who defeated real enemies like Sihon and Og can do it again. And he will do it again if we're willing to trust him. Two applications for us briefly. First, very practically, when, when like Israel, it feels like a big victory in your life, some sort of spiritual battle, is still in the future. When, when all the conflicts in your marriage have yet to be resolved, or the injustice in your workplace has yet to go away, or, or when some besetting sin in your life just hasn't quite pieced out, okay? Do not overlook the significance of little victories along the way that remind you, that shout, God is still faithful. God is at work. God is on the move, Okay? We can trust him. So did you control your tongue a little bit more last night? Praise God, right? Has your longing for Jesus to make all things new just deepened even as the wrongs have increased? Praise God. Wait, when you feel troubled, do do you turn toward the Lord in prayer and his word just, just a little bit faster this year than you did the previous year? Praise God. Right? Israel was still experiencing the consequences of her sin when the Lord delivered her in amazing ways. Do not confine 
God's goodness, Christian, to some future season where you arrive at spiritual maturity. Don't do that. He's faithful today, even in the little battles. That's a big application. Okay, here's the second, all right? For Israel, the biggest battle had yet to be won, right? Sion and Og were just kind of warm-up acts for for Canaan and all that would go down there with Jericho and following. But, But there's a difference here for us. For you, Christian, the biggest battle has already been won. Hear that. What are you talking about? Well, it was won at the cross, right? Confirmed at the empty tomb where where your king, King Jesus, resoundingly defeated the powers of sin and death. So yes, your life in this world is going to be full of all kinds of enemy encounters, the world, the flesh, the devil. But know this, every one of them, all those foes assailing you right now are mortally wounded enemies, Because we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And and we contend for godliness with a faith fueled by confidence in the victory Jesus already won for us. Just to illustrate this, I I love the fact that football season has arrived. It's just so good. It's, it's, I was going to say it's life-changing for Sunday afternoons. That's oversettling it. But it's a gift from God, okay? Go Eagles. And, And my heart... My heart is noticeably less anxious, more peaceful when I'm watching a recorded game that I know my team has already won. Anybody with me on that? Right? You felt that? Okay. I I can savor every moment. I, I can really just enjoy every play. Look at the way he hit that guy, you know, without the slightest bit of concern. For the final outcome. Friends, that's the assurance we have through the gospel. Yes, this life is hard. Yes, there are battles to be fought. Hard battles, grievous battles. But we know how the game ends. Because he's not in the tomb. Warnings of the consequences of human unfaithfulness. They're all over Deuteronomy, okay? They're designed by God to push us from behind. Be warned. Human unfaithfulness. Promises of God's faithfulness pull us from the front. That's the context of Deuteronomy. That's the setting. Has it served Israel? May it serve us. So what's the content? Author, setting, what's the content? Well, in short, this is a covenant document. A covenant document. All right, look at the very end of verse 5. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. This law. Now, quick time out, okay? This is relevant not just for Deuteronomy, but your entire Bible. File this away. When we read Deuteronomy, we don't want to impose our own 21st century American understanding of whatever law is in our minds onto God's word. Okay? Don't do that. All right? We have to ask, what exactly is this law 
that Moses sets out to explain. And I actually think that the English name given to this book of Scripture is is a bit unhelpful here, Deuteronomy, which literally translated means second law. But that's not quite right, because that's not quite what the book really is. it's, It's more a renewal and an expansion of something the Lord entered into with Israel a generation earlier. It's Sinai. What's that? Well, uh, it's a relationship consisting of oath-bound commitments or promises called a covenant. A covenant. If you didn't know this, the the entire storyline of the Bible is, is carried along on the back of covenant. Covenant relationships. God established them with his people or many times a representative of his people. So whether you're talking about Adam or Noah or Abraham or Israel or David or Jesus, there's a consistent pattern. What's the pattern in the covenants? Well, God graciously takes initiative to act on our behalf. And we are commanded as his people to trust and obey him accordingly. There are unconditional elements. God will do this no matter what. And there are conditional elements. God will do this if the human partner acts in a certain way in all the covenants. And there's a significant element of of continuity or sameness between them because the God who makes them doesn't change, right? So, So the promises that God made to King David... It wasn't just like, okay, restart because the last guy was an epic failure. No, they, they build, build off of, expand, extend, renew, broaden, gloriously, the promises God made to Abraham, for example. But, but there's also a significant amount of discontinuity or, or difference between the covenants. Later covenants carry forward and expand Promises embedded in the earlier covenants in in ways that cause the new kind of relationship to exceed in glory the real glory of the old kind of relationship. For example, the people of God under the old covenant, Mosaic Israelite covenant, Deuteronomy, were a mixed multitude. Okay? Some loved the Lord wholeheartedly, Followed him? Most did not. Most did not. Not so the people of God under the new covenant. Why do I say that? Because we're not defined ethnically or or by our our family connection to a guy named Abraham. We're we're defined spiritually by by our union with Jesus Christ through faith in him. Those who hold fast to him are not a mixed multitude. Okay, every one of us, not just some of us who are holding fast to him, has had our hearts radically transformed through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who enables us to trust and obey Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, in other words, the obedient son, the faithful human partner who who bears the curse of sin and death that we deserve and what? Gives us the blessing of life with God that he deserves. So, Throughout Deuteronomy, we're going to see again and again the necessity and nature of the new covenant that's coming later with Jesus. 
Especially in chapter 30, we'll see that. But, but this book is fundamentally an old covenant document. Okay? It, it renews and supplements the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. What was that? Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves, here's the covenant, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That, that's the same time when the Lord gave Israel the Ten Commandments, which were, which were just random rules. No. <laughs> they what? They laid out what is faithfulness, the obedience of faith look like in response to the God who saves. Okay, that's, that's the covenant Deuteronomy affirms and expands. But not just in a chapter or two, okay, here's a key point, all right, in the structure of the entire book. So check this out. The way Deuteronomy is actually put together, all right, closely parallels the structure of Hittite treaties from the 14th century BC between a ruler and his subjects. So you've got a preamble in chapter one. You have a historical prologue in chapters one through four doing what? Reviewing all God has done in faithfulness to his people. Chapter five through 11, general laws. Chapters 12 through 26, detailed laws. Chapters 27 and 28, specific blessings and curses for what? Keeping or failing to keep the laws in five through 26. And then you have witnesses identified in 30 and 32. So, so yes, this book contains all sorts of laws explaining what faithfulness to God looks like. But all of that instruction, all that content, it, it comes to us in the form, the shape, as it were, of a covenant document that just shouts of God's heart for relationship with his people. It, that, that heart isn't just embedded in the, the words here. It's, it's embedded in the structure, the shape. As, as Daryl Block observes, I mean, this is totally different than Greek law codes or Roman law codes. They, they, they weren't after a relationship. Daryl Block says, this book presents the law as a gift of grace to guide the redeemed in the way of righteousness leading to life. Do not think Deuteronomy is a bunch of random rules, my friend. It's not, even if you think it is, doesn't change the fact. It's still not, all right? It's a relational document capturing God's heart for his people and the kind of life they have to live to enjoy relationship with his people. I'll put it this bluntly. No part of Deuteronomy is legalistic. Not one part. Because God is never legalistic. Never has been, never will be. Not once in this book does the Lord tell Israel, try to earn relationship with me. You won't find it. He graciously initiates. He graciously redeems. He, he rescues her from his, her enemies through mighty acts of salvation. And then he says, now guys, trust and obey me for your good and my glory. <laughs> he doesn't change. The obedience of faith 
and Scripture. Then, now, in between, it's never been a work of merit. It's always been a response to God's mercy. That's the content. We're going to have a blast. <laughs> let, me, let me end with a, just a final few suggestions on how to read the law in light of Christ. I trust this is helpful. We'll, we'll come back to this again and again, but let's just put it all out there up front, okay? You, you could summarize the book this way. God is faithful despite our sin. So trust him, obey his word, conquer the land. That's Deuteronomy. And, and it's, it's Moses' way of teaching Israel. This is probably the most important verse in the entire book. Here's what it looks like, guys, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, but that raises a really important question. Are you saying, Matthew, that what Deuteronomy meant back then is still what it means today. You've been avoiding that question, Matthew. No, we were just waiting till now, okay? Hear me, and I pray God would help us to think carefully this morning. My answer to that, does Deuteronomy mean today, what it meant back then, is both a yes and a no. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense, hear this, that the essential meaning of scripture never changes. Because the original intent of the divine author never changes. God God speaks to us at a particular cultural moment. But scripture is never the product of human culture, Kingsway. It's a revelation of the unchanging character and will of God. So so the meaning may be expanded. The the meaning may be carried forward throughout the Bible and and transformed even in unexpected ways by later revelation. But it will never mean one thing back then and something entirely and utterly different today. It's in that sense that that Deuteronomy is, is just as authoritative for us as it was for Israel. Feel the weight of that. That's the yes, but... But there's also a critical sense, here's the no, in which the way we must apply the book of Deuteronomy has to change because our covenantal context has changed. What do I mean by that? Well, we no longer live under the old covenant. That that way of relating based on oath-bound promises and commitments that God set up with Israel That's changed. We now live under a new way of relating, oath-bound promises, same kind of relationship, called the new covenant in Christ Jesus. We're we're under a different covenant, in other words. A new way of relating to God that Deuteronomy itself actually anticipates. And the rest of Scripture affirms. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What's going to be new? I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Here's what scripture itself is saying, okay? The the Mosaic or old covenant built on a code of law 
has been replaced today by the new covenant built on the person and work of Christ. Such that the old covenant is no longer in force at all. As Paul says in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness or right standing with God to everyone who believes. So the key to right standing with God is no longer found, the key to it in the law, it's found in Christ. That's changed. But that doesn't make the law bad. Right? There's the kicker. It just makes Jesus immeasurably and infinitely better. Okay? The greater glory we find in the new covenant does not mean the lesser glory of the old covenant was inglorious. Indeed, the law points forward to Jesus again and again. So so here's the question. How does the person and work of Christ, living under the new covenant, change the way we read and interpret the law? It will not do to divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial categories. Keep the first, ditch the second too. Why not? Because of a little verse called Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, I came to fulfill the whole law, not just part of it. So does that mean we just ditch the whole thing then, Jesus? No. No, not so fast. We're not under the law or obligated to obey the Mosaic law in a direct or covenantal sense. We're under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21. Well, what is the law of Christ? I think Doug Moo's perspective is helpful. It is the demand of God that is binding on Christians since the coming of Christ. And what do those demands include? All the demands of the Mosaic law as they have been fulfilled in Christ. So the Mosaic law remains applicable and authoritative in our lives, but only indirectly as it's been fulfilled in Christ. Now, let me give you an example because that can all sound really abstract, okay? Let's, let's land the plane back on earth here. How do we apply the command of Deuteronomy 10 to keep the Sabbath? Quick illustration. We ask three questions. First, what did this command mean for Israel? We're going to ask that again and again over the next year. Okay, what did it mean for Israel? Well, it meant very clearly they have to cease from their labor on the seventh day of the week. No questions asked. Second, we ask, what's the underlying spiritual principle in play here? Well, I mean, why would God require them to do such a thing? Because it reminded them of their dependence on God. He's the provider. And it gave them an opportunity to to renew their trust in him. So what did it mean for Israel? Why would God require that? What's the underlying spiritual principle? Then here's the third key question, the new covenant question. How is this command transformed by Christ and the new covenant he inaugurated? And in this case, Hebrews 4 leads the way. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, right? We're no longer obligated to not work on the seventh day of the week. You can breathe a sigh of relief, those of you that are doing email this afternoon. As much as there is great wisdom 
and establishing regular patterns of work and rest. We're obligated to hold fast to Christ, to to find spiritual rest, not, not in the absence of our labor, but in the perfection of his. So we keep Sabbath on this side of the cross by by renewing our trust and confidence in Jesus through the weekly gathering of the saints. But here's the key. The, The more we understand about what it meant to keep Sabbath under the old covenant and why it mattered, the more we will be equipped to keep Sabbath under the new covenant and why it matters. Okay? Because rightly interpreted, Every aspect of the law helps us understand the fullness of Christ. What what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those things haven't gone away. We need this book because we need to see what it looks like to be ruled by a gracious God, my friends. Bottom line, in, in an age where authorities are automatically suspect, I'll end with this. Deuteronomy points us in a very different direction. Over and over again, it shouts, being ruled by God is exceedingly good. You were made for that. I was made for that. You you were created for that. We are saved for that. Exceedingly good. From, From the actions of future kings to the work of impoverished laborers, every aspect of Israelite society. It's regulated by the word. So our our place in redemptive history may be different. It is. But our need is the same. We, We need to experience the joy of living in submission to God's rule. And as we linger over these pages, and the band can join us, here's my prayer. Close your eyes and listen to this. May the Spirit teach us to say this with the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. For they are the joy of my heart. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. And I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Lord Jesus, would you please work that in our hearts that we might say with the psalmist, Lord God, how we love your law and the Savior to whom it points. Help us with that, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.